Well, good morning, Watermark friends and family and folks that are watching from a lot of other places. Happy Mother's Day. It is May 10th, 2020, and we are still not together the way we want to be with our families. I, I pray that you are maybe near your mom or that you'll take some time today to pick up the phone and call your mama and wish her happy Mother's Day. We need mamas because they love us despite uh, our tendency to need admonishment, encouragement, and a lot of help. And let me tell you why that's frankly a perfect segue into our study of 1 Thessalonians this morning. A long time ago, there was a um, follower of Jesus who lived in the third century whose name was Augustine. And Augustine said this, he who would not have church as a mother does not have God as a father. Right? Remember, the church is the bride of Christ, and the church has been given the stewards, uh, stewardship of the gospel and the chance to bring to us the power of God for salvation. We know that the Spirit is what germinates faith in us and gives us the gift of understanding, but the church, you and I, are the stewards of this, and then God doesn't just give us the ability to proclaim the gospel to others, but to help people grow more and more into Christ's likeness. So the church is our mom. In fact, when Paul was writing to the Thessalonians in 1 Thess 2, 7 and 8, he makes reference to this. He said, hey, listen, when we were with you, we proved to be gentle among you. Thank God for gentle mothers, uh, to be gentle among you. And like a, like a nursing mother tenderly cares for her children. And he said, we didn't just preach at you in verse 8 but we wanted to impart our very lives to you. That's our goal here at Watermark. We don't wanna just preach at you and give you the gospel, which certainly we do. We wanna give birth to new life in you, but we wanna impart our lives to you. We wanna be the iron that sharpens your iron. We wanna be the uh, exhortive father that spurs you on to love and good deeds. We'll do that some today. And we wanna be tenderly sharpening and caring for one another the way a mother, a nursing mother does her children. All of that is why we gather. We can't wait to gather. We thank you that you're gathering in smaller communities now, and we look forward to being back together again. And I just want to pray for you right now and, um, and just remind you as we get started that no matter what kind of mother you were, no matter what kind of mother you had, no matter what kind of father you are or what kind of father you had, God is the father to the fatherless, and he has given you... Um, grace. I tell people all the time that your earthly father is not a reflection of your heavenly father, but your heavenly father is the perfection of what he intends our earthly fathers to be. So God's our father, and so he gives us his word, and we're going to study it today, and God's given us the church as a mother to tenderly care for us, so we come around you now, and we teach you um, words of life. And so I pray the pure milk of the word today would comfort you. That's the specific point of this passage and strengthen you, which is what good nourishment does. So welcome. The God of grace makes up for all the imperfect moms and all the imperfect dads that are out there, both in provision and in grace for our sin. Let me pray. Father, thank you for grace. I know as much as I want to be a great, perfect father to my children, that um, I'm just a, a reflection of how good you are. I thank you that you are the perfect father and that there is nobody out there today that you don't want to bring into relationship with you. And so I pray for folks that are listening that are orphaned by sin and have been ripped out of relationship with you by their own choosing, that today, Father, you would give new birth to them and that they would come to see your kindness and your goodness 
and your love expressed through Christ on the cross that they could be reconciled to you. And I pray those words would not be foreign to them, but they would see your love and that you would tenderly care for them this morning as you even confront them in their sin, you would awaken them to new life. They would be born again. And then the mother of the church would help them grow. Father, thank you for this body and the fact that these friends help me grow in every way and for the privilege of being a steward of the mysteries of God. Would you allow my words now to encourage my friends on this Mother's Day as we honor you, our Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. What I want to do just to set this up for you is I want to block out this amazing passage. It starts in verse 1 of chapter 4 with this little statement, like finally, and I mentioned this last week. It doesn't mean like this is the last thing I'm going to say because Paul is going to go forward and he's kind of saying like, and now in light of the gospel and your reception of it, now this is how you respond to the gospel. So Watch what Paul did. It's a very simple outline. I'm going to take myself off the screen here in just a second and give you an outline for the rest of the book. Okay, so here it is. Boom. We all want to know what God's will is for us. And um, what I tell people all the time is that we don't want to be obsessed with figuring out what is God's will as much as we want to worry that we do what is God's will. In other words, sometimes we think about God's will for me. We're trying to figure out where we eat or who we marry or what's my job. And First Thess tells you what is God's will. It's specifically that you would love God and love others. And you see that there in that first outline. And you saw last week when we talked uh, about verses one and two specifically, that God's will is that you would be living to please him, the one who gave his life for you. And so really verses one and two set up the entire next two chapters, that you would live to please him, that you'd love God, and then the rest of it, from chapter four, verse three, all the way through the very end in chapter five um, to the end of the book, you'll see that it's application of how we love others. So last week we talked about how we're gonna pursue faithfulness and purity. We're not gonna use people as toys for our own pleasure. We're not gonna live um, in godless exploitation of people as those that um, we're doing who didn't know Jesus. We're gonna constantly be increasing in our love for others. And we're gonna be, people who have a hardworking, responsible life. This week, we're going to talk about how um, we're going to be people who, even in a world still filled with grief, we can show steadfast hope. Let me just give you a little preview to where we're headed um, next week. You're going to see that we're going to talk more about end times, that people who love God love others by being excellent in the way that they live and show that there's judgment that's coming and they're ready for Christ's return. Verses 12 through 13 and 14 and 15, we'll study the week after that where we see that we should have a great respect for our spiritual leaders, those, if you will, that are head of um, the church and those that shepherd our hearts, even as we're patient and graceful towards each other as we follow Christ. Then we should be rejoicing always and constant in prayer, thankful in everything. You see at the very end, Paul's just gonna almost bullet, bullet, bullet all the different ways that we can live a spirit-yielded, spiritual-sensitive, and faithful life as we hate evil and depend on Christ. There we go. That's kind of the outline uh, of the rest of the book of Thessalonians. Okay, good news is you don't have to worry if you got all that written down because every week what we do is that we put um, all these notes online for you. Watermark.org, you'll see there's a sermon note section right under the message tab. They transcribe the whole message. 
for you to go back if you want to read it and take some notes. And then also anything that we put up on the screen and maybe some other things and some other links to uh, parallel resources are always right there for you. But as we get ready to study verses 13 through 18, let me just remind you, as it said, that God's will for our life in 1 Thess 4, 3 is our sanctification. Sanctification is God's process of having us learn more of his ways so that the, um, the power of sin to control us, to make us people who are in rebellion against God is minimized in our life. So let me just tell you this, salvation is a class and it involves justification where we trust in Jesus and we have peace with God and we're freed from the penalty of sin. Sanctification is when we are being delivered from the power of sin by yielding to the spirit in our life. And then we're gonna get to the blessed hope that we have even a little bit today when God finishes this good work he began in us. And it's called glorification, where we're delivered from the very presence of sin. Man, what a great day that's gonna be. But right now, we're in a world that is still marred by sin, sometimes in us and sometimes around us. Death is still here on this earth. And the Thessalonians were trying to figure out, what do we do in a world where there's still death? What about those who believed in you, Jesus, and now are dead? Did they miss out on the blessing of your return? Those were the questions the Thessalonians asked and that we're going to study today. Um, We have to study. I'm going to talk a little bit in just a second about how ignorance is not bliss. I'm going to tell you even where that statement and that idea came from. Both your Bible and that particular phrase by a poet who lived in 18th century England. But um, here's a really good quote by um, a gentleman that uh, is a a noted scholar. His name is D.A. Carson. Uh, He's up there at Trinity Seminary. And this is why we study God's word. It's why we're here together, dad, with pen in hand and journal open in front of our kids, right? Because D.A. Carson said this, people don't drift towards holiness. Remember, we just showed you that God's trying to get us um, to understand a right response to the gospel. We have to participate with what God provides for us so that we can experience what God means for us. And sanctification and pursuing God's will doesn't just happen because we sit there and go, okay, God, go to work. He tells us to to participate with him and to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. That's why we gather. We don't gather because we need to do things for God to love us. We gather because we love God. So watch this. People don't drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people don't gravitate towards godliness or prayer or obedience to scripture, faith and delight in the Lord. We drift, isn't this true, towards compromise. And sometimes to our great shame, we call that compromise tolerance. And we drift towards disobedience. And we call that disobedience freedom. We drift towards superstition and we call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. Wow, may that not be true of us. May we live to please God and to love others. May God's will for us, our sanctification, be evident in the way we conduct ourselves in physical relationships, in the way we emotionally and relationally pursue one another, 
in the way we work for God's glory. And now in 1 Thess 4, 13 through 18, even in the way we face grief, death. That's the section of scripture that we're in. Last thing I want to say to you about this is um, we work hard because we're motivated to serve the God who gave himself for us. We are not legalists, okay? Legalism, and I want to put these up and they're in the notes. As I said last week, it's worth reviewing. Legalism is I'm going to do it so that I can be loved. And we reject that. Paul doesn't say, finally, do these things so God could love you. He says, finally, because God loves you. And you see, you've heard the word I preached to you about Christ crucified for you. Respond to him, right? So legalism, I'll tell you in a second, is a false gospel. But there's another equal and opposite response that is just as offensive to God, and it's called licentiousness. I mentioned this some last week. Licentiousness is, I don't need to do anything because God loves me so much. I have license to do whatever I want, whenever I want to do, because it is finished and Christ's sacrifice is sufficient for me. That's nonsense. People who say they love God and they don't care what God cares about have a false profession about their understanding of the love of God. And then lastly, there's what we call appropriately the love motivation. Love motivation is, man, I'm thankful that Christ died for me, that the wages of my sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. And Christ died for me, so I want to live for him. I'm going to deny myself because he's my Lord and my King. We are motivated by love to possess our vessels in honor. We are motivated by love to pursue each other relationally and care for the lost. We're motivated by love to um, work hard so that we're not a burden to other people. And because of the love of God, we grieve and not as those who have no hope. So legalism is a false gospel. Licentiousness is a false profession. And the love motivation is what makes up a true Christian. Let me give you some great truth. Are you ready? I'm I'm so excited to study this passage with you. um, And thank you for the privilege of um, getting to study God's word and to teach it to you and to be a pastor to you and a friend and a co-laborer. I need the mother church I need you as friends to admonish me and to encourage me and to help me. So off we go to encourage and help one another. All right? First Thess 4, 13 through 18. Paul's writing, he's saying, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we'll always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So let me tell you what's going on here. Paul has come to a church like ours, to a town that didn't know Jesus. Now, we grew up in a town that did, and we heard the gospel from other Christians who were here, who were faithful parts of the church. But, but for, for you, imagine just trusting in Christ, and you heard Paul came, and he told you about the fact that... Um, There is a God. He's not 
angry at you, he does judge sin, and all of us are sinners. All of us fall short of the glory that God intends for us, and there's a consequence to that. But praise be to God. He made him who knew no sin, the God-man, Jesus, the one that has eternally existed, the creator of heavens and earth, the one who is one with the Father, one with the Spirit, the, the eternal, glorious, kind Godhead. He made Jesus to become sin in our behalf that we by faith might become the righteousness of God in him. And Jesus, though he was crucified, God raised him from the dead to show you that he wasn't just some um, madman, some teacher, some deceiver. He was who he said he was. He said, no one takes my life from me. I'm gonna lay it down and I'm gonna take it back up again. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And then he ascended to heaven. And he said, behold, I'm returning quickly and my reward is with me and I will recompense men according to their deeds. So let's just say you just heard that. And then the person who brought you that good news that you believed in left. And while he was gone and while that teacher who had encouraged you with truth and had pointed you to how the scriptures had been fulfilled in Jesus and that Jesus was coming back and, and what Paul always would teach was what's called the imminent return of Christ, that, that nothing needs to happen in world history for Christ to return suddenly. People that believed with you are dying. Maybe some because they've been persecuted. And, and so they had a lot of questions. And um, Paul didn't tell them when Christ would return, but, but I, just, I made some notes to myself. They were probably saying, hey, what's gonna happen to my family and friends who have died? Are they all right? Will I, will I see them again? Will they miss out on the blessing of Christ's return and his reign? And what about us if we die? And so the Thessalonians had some questions. And when Paul heard that the church had some questions, he decided to put this little section in the letter. Now, part of our sanctification is growing in our understanding of what God has told us. We're, we're no longer um, just, um, as it says in the book of Hebrews, we're no longer gonna uh, just hear about the elementary teachings of sin and judgment and the resurrection of the dead, um, but we should move on to more uh, fuller understandings of other things that God has for us. And so this is one of them. And I love what Paul says. Um, to them right here as he starts off. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed. Now, this is a pretty familiar phrase with Paul. And I, I like this when I hear it because I, I'm a person that loves to learn. I think one of the things that is, uh, makes me an image bearer is that I long for knowledge. It's the glory of men, the scripture says, um, for kings to seek out, if you will, um, the truth of a matter. And I um, am always asking questions. And, and I, I love, we all love the Google, right? But Google doesn't have all the answers <laughs> that Jesus does. This book is called A Revelation. It is a peeling back of um, a curtain that keeps us from understanding things that are true. And God in his grace is revealing them to us. And he's given us his word, okay? And so, the mark of a wise young man is that you would, or woman, is that you would aspire to understand. This is what Solomon 
wrote as a young man uh, to, to his future generations of sons. And in Proverbs chapter four, he says this, the beginning of wisdom is this, acquire wisdom, all right? And with all your uh, acquiring, get understanding. Why? Because when you know what's true and you understand how it apply it to your life, if you prize wisdom, she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. And one of the things that Paul wants them to do is I want you to understand something that Jesus taught on that I'm going to grow you and your understanding of so that um, you can be exalted even in the way you grieve. Christians are an interesting crew. We, um, we're not like the rest of the world. You go to a Christian funeral and we sing. Right? I have been around the world. I have been in India um, uh, along um, the Gangzi River where, uh, where you'll see uh, people mourning the death of their friends. And it's somber and there's a burning of the body and it's a dumping this into the river where it flows downstream and then it reincarnates. And, and there's just not a lot of hope. I guess the hope is that you'll come back with a better life than the one you just left. Well... We have a greater promise than that. In fact, um, I just think it's good to, to laugh and to smile some. And so I want to read to you um, before we get serious about how other folks um, had no hope and what they said. And um, this is a poem by a, a, a cowboy poet. His name's Wallace McRae. And um, it kind of lends itself to this uh, reincarnation view. All right. And so you ready for a little cowboy poetry? I'll give it to you. And if you want to look it up, it's pretty easy to find. Just type in um, Reincarnation by Wallace McRae, and you can have access to the poem. We'll put a link to it in the show notes, or show notes, in the, uh, um, in the sermon notes, and then uh, you can have it. But this is, this is great. What does reincarnation mean, a cowpoke asked his friend. His power replied, well, it happens when your life has reached its end. They comb your hair and wash your neck and clean your fingernails and lay you in a padded box away from life's travails. The box and you goes in a hole that's been dug into the ground. Reincarnation starts in when you're planted neath the mound. Them clods melt down just like your box and, and you who is inside and then you're just beginning your transformation ride. In a while, the grass will grow upon your rendered mound till someday on your moldered grave, a lonely flower is found. And say a hoss should wander by and graze upon this flower that once was you, but now has become his vegetative bower. The posy that the hoss done ate up with his other feed makes bone and fat and muscle essential to the seed. But some is left that he can't use and so it passes through and finally lays upon the ground the thing that once was you. <laughs> then say by chance I wonders by and sees a, this upon the ground and I ponders and I wonders at the object that I found. I thinks a reincarnation of life and death and such and come away concluding, Slim, you ain't changed all that much. <laughs> That's funny, all right? And uh, it just makes me laugh. Not a lot of hope in that, is there? <laughs> that that, uh, that, that uh, when the steed no longer needs the nutrients that come from us, that uh, we're passed through him and we turn into uh, waste. <laughs> so uh, that's kind of the, 
the hope. I mean, I mean, you know, some people don't want to come back that they want to be reincarnated um, into all kinds of things. I don't need to go into reincarnation. I want to go into resurrection truth. I want to give it to you. Let me just tell you why Paul was writing to these folks. It was common to folks in that day and age that um, when they died, they would um, have different philosophers that would tell them what was waiting. And so here's just a few of the the ideas that were out there. This is from uh, Isaculus who said, once a man dies, there is no resurrection. It's kind of like, I remember a guy named G. Gordon Liddy who lived. And he goes, hey, you die and you're food for the worms. That's it. Another guy would say, uh, uh, Theocritus said, there is hope for those who are alive, but those who died are without hope. Another guy, Catalyst, said, once our brief light sets, there is one perpetual night through which we do nothing but, he says, sleep. There's not a lot of hope there. Um, The guy who wrote A Brave New World, this is just to bring it into our day and age, a guy named um, Aldous Huxley, who denied Christ, and I'm going to talk next week about why people deny Christ, and specifically Aldous Huxley. But he said this. He goes, I think what you should do is ignore death. You should ignore death up to the last moment. Then, when it can't be ignored any longer, have yourself squirted full of morphine and then shuffle off into a coma. That is um, not much hope. And God doesn't want us to have to be medicated out of our pain and sorrow. God doesn't want us to go to the grave thinking it's it because it's not. The Bible is long taught all the way back to Daniel chapter 12. Um, he said, there's going to be a resurrection for the righteous and for the wicked. And they're both going to stand before God and they're both going to give an account. And so the Thessalonians had a question. And the question was basically this, what is going to happen to my family and my brothers and sisters in Christ who have died before Christ has returned. We have our answer right here. And what Paul's going to tell them is that their hope is in the gospel. Our hope is in the fact that Jesus is raised from the dead. And so he is going to raise those who are his from the grave and he's going to return. And Paul's going to map out exactly how that's going to happen. And it should bring us comfort. Let me just go back though to this statement that Paul starts with. When he says, we don't want you to be uninformed. There's a number of other times that Paul says this. He says it in Romans chapter one. I don't want you to be uninformed about my condition. So I'm going to write to tell you. He says it in Romans chapter 11. Um, I don't want you to be uninformed about what God's going to do with the, the descendants of Abraham, the nation of Israel, in light of their rejection of the Messiah. I'm going to tell you what he's going to do with the nation of Israel. That's Romans 11. He tells us in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, people that have seen amazing acts of God, um, who saw him split the sea, who, um, who, who watched him bring forth water from a rock. When you get to 1 Corinthians 10, 5, he just says, I want you to know that despite all they saw, God wasn't pleased with them. And a lot of them sang some great hymns to God. And they were brought to judgment. And so he says, I don't want you to be uninformed about the fact that judgment comes to those who even profess a faith. He says in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 11, boy, if there's ever something our world needs right now, it is a reminder of this, that there is a binary gender (laughs) and that there is creative order and that uh, we don't get the assigned pronouns, God does. I want you to understand, he said, that Christ is the head of every man, 
And then he says that, that man has a leadership role and woman has a role and man better make sure he doesn't confuse his role with his rank because man's accountable to God. And if you use your position of leadership to be abusive to women, that's not gonna go well with you. If you deny that there is male and female, that's not gonna go well with you. Paul says, I, I don't want you to be uninformed. And then finally in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, I, I don't want you to be unaware about spiritual gifts. And so in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 and 14, he corrects the Corinthians' abuse and misunderstanding about spiritual gifts. Isn't that what a loving father should do? Is just tell you things? Now, listen, everything in scripture is teaching. But specifically, there are some times he says, hey, I'm going to teach you on this topic. And right here in 1 Thess 4, verse 13, is one of them. All right. Um, I love the quote that um, one of you know my pastoral uh, mentors, okay, who lived uh, centuries or so ago, Charles Spurgeon. You know, he said that when he talks about God's word, and this is the thing that I'm just telling you guys. You know, this is the why we devote ourselves daily, so we can go to our friends and not share our ideas. We can go to our friends and say, "Let me counsel you biblically. Let me admonish you faithfully." as I pursue you, as a mother tenderly does her nursing child, let me teach you what the Father has said. That's what Paul's about to do. Spurgeon is the one who said this, if we don't love the Bible, we certainly don't love the God who gave it to us. We should never say, give God the hand. When you've got a question before you Google it, get on your knees and got it, right? You know, open open the scriptures and see what it says. Um, let me just give you an application point. If I could just kind of say it in a, a, a fairly pithy way, this isn't really short, but, but you know, when you want to, when, when, when you're challenged um, by life circumstances, okay, um, you should be somebody and, and who just is, is rattled a little bit about what is true. Like I lost somebody I love. Is, is God good? Is God care for me? Here's a statement. When what you know to be true and when what you are experiencing in your own life don't match up, okay, um, you must continually go back to what you know is true, which is God's word, and surround yourself with those who love truth, all right? So one more time, um, we'll, we'll try and throw it up there for you, but it basically says one more time, when you, when you, what, when what you know to be true, and as a Christian, we know God is good, we know his word is true, and we know that he loves us. When you know to be true and what you are experiencing don't match, you've got to continually go back to what you know is true and surround yourself with those who love truth. I was talking to a friend this week who did exactly that. He was struggling to the point of despairing and he just said, I, I, one of the things I'm doing right now is I'm meeting with my friend and we're reading scripture together to remind myself about how I should handle some of the thoughts that I have that are leading to a restlessness, maybe anxiety or even despair. Maybe thoughts of self-harm for some of you. I've told my friends, if I get some information and some news that great harm has come from at the hands of evil to one of my family, I want them to run to me and I want them to speak to me in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I want to flood my mind with truth 
Because when I'm experiencing things that don't match God's love for me and God's care for me, I've got to be reminded the world that I live in. Now, here's the thing for the Thessalonians and for you and me, especially during this season when we're watching tens of thousands of folks in our country die, which, um, you know, in addition to all the deaths that were already there from seasonal flu and from cancer and from heart disease and from a myriad of other things, now we've added to that a new expression uh, of sickness that is leading to the termination of life. It's always sad when we lose somebody that we love, but we shouldn't grieve as those who have no hope. Here's the point right here in our message. God's word is here to be a light to our feet um, and a lamp to our path. And he wants to guide us and he doesn't want to leave us in the dark. So we open our word, we read it to one another, and we study it, okay? Um, it is not true that ignorance is bliss. I, I told you that um, I would make reference to this. Uh, we we kind of maybe all know that, yet sometimes we do say, hey, ignorance is bliss, right? Here's the truth. Ignorance isn't bliss. It's a breeding ground for trouble. So just give you a little teaching to you, okay? Um, that phrase, ignorance is bliss, in some ways, okay, it came from your Bible, but the exact phrase came from a guy named Thomas Gray who wrote a little poem in 1742 called Ode to Eton. Now, Eton College is um, probably the most celebrated prep school in the world. Uh, it's where all of the uh, nobles and uh, well-off, well-to-do people in England actually go to high school. It's a, it's a high school, but it's called a college, Eton College. And while he was getting ready to leave the wonders of being a, a young son of a nobleman who grew up in the beautiful countryside of England and enjoying all the bliss of being a young man under the care of his father, he wrote a poem, getting ready to go to Eton College. And it's called An Ode to Eton College. And what he's basically saying there is, hey, it's time for me to grow up. And while there's been a blissfulness to my life as a child, when I was a child, I thought as a child, but now I've got to learn to face the realities of the world. Here's the way, um, at the very end of the 10th stanza, he says this. He says, yet, ah, why should we want to know our fate? Because um, sorrow never comes too late. I wish I could just be a kid who could just kind of skip through life. I watch my grandkids right now. I watch my dog and they have no worries about insurance, no worries about uh, unemployment. They have no worries about um, how we're going to pay for the next thing. They're just happy. And they skip and they chase butterflies and they chase their tail and they want to go on a swing. And what Thomas Gray was writing, he said, man, sorrow never comes too late, but happiness, man, that way too swiftly flies. So reminiscing back on his childhood days, he says just basically this, if we thought it would destroy the paradise of a child, but he says, it's time to grow up. No more will I live where ignorance is bliss. No more will I think it's folly to be wise. Why? Because I'm a man. And it's time for me to grow up and face the realities of the world. Well, one of the realities of the world is death. Paul didn't want you to be surprised that it was still coming. And Paul and God doesn't want you to be surprised about what's gonna happen to those who believe. So let me tell you what Paul doesn't cover in, these, in this passage. He doesn't talk about 
um, in great detail about hell. He doesn't talk about the new heavens and the new earth. He doesn't um, go through the, the nature of the resurrection body. Um, he doesn't really talk about um, the fact that there's an ultimate judgment day and what the reign of Christ is going to be like. But what he does tell you is this. Those who die have gone to be with the Lord. They will return with the Lord. Their bodies will be resurrected first, and then you will join them and will always be with the Lord. So uh, just to wrap this up, you know, Solomon, when he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, he started by just saying, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And one of the things that he said is vanity is, is much learning, okay? And I'm gonna read to you, um, you know, uh, a couple of verses out of here just to just kind of wrap up this idea that if you think your learning is gonna give you peace ultimately, Solomon says, no, it's not. The only learning that's gonna give you peace is the learning of the goodness and sovereignty and care of God for you. Don't think that you're going to learn some philosophy um, or, or some broad scope of intellect that will give you peace. This is what he says. He says, in much wisdom, in Ecclesiastes 1.18, there is much grief because you see, even though I know all these things, I, I still can't solve everything. In the chapter two, in, um, in verses 13 and 14, he says this, I do know this, wisdom is better than folly as much as light is better than darkness. Because he says, the wise man's eyes are in his head, but a fool walks in darkness. He didn't have any clue about what's going on. And yet I know this, both of them still die and they have no idea what's at the grave, unless God shows them. And so that's why Solomon, at the very end of the book of Ecclesiastes, what he's saying is, hey man, there's nothing that you can find real satisfaction and joy in other than God. And so he says this, this is what's true. The words of wise men are like goads. They're going to move you along. And the wisest of all men is God himself. He's not a man, but, but he is the omniscient one that has in his grace shown us truth that it can strengthen our hearts. And it says the masters of the words of God, in effect, are like well-driven nails. They hold things together. They give people hope. And all those wise words come and are given by one shepherd. Hopefully this church has some that are wise shepherds. Watch this. He says, listen, the, the endless study of the books of the world, it's basically meaningless. I mean, read it for fun, read it for insight, but real hope comes from this. Verse 13, the conclusion, when all has been said and done, is fear God. Keep his commandments for this applies to every person, for God will bring every act to judgment. Everything which is hidden will be revealed, whether it's good or evil. And that's next week's text. This week's text says, let me comfort you with this truth. Are you ready? Have you lost somebody in this season? Or have you lost somebody you love? What a gift. It is to grieve at the grave. And um, I just want to make it really clear to you right here that grief is not unfamiliar to or even forbidden to the Christian. It's um, what is forbidden is grief with no hope. We know something. We know that the grave is not the end. We know it's an eternally fixed beginning. We know that Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed for man to die once and after this comes judgment. And we know that if we believe in Jesus Christ, we've passed out of judgment into life. And now Paul's gonna tell us what happens when we die, okay? Okay. Um, 
There is uh, a statement about grief that I just want to stick in right here that I think will help you a little bit that um, I read that I I really liked, and that is that grief never ends. And I I just want to say this. It's wrong to tell people that they can't feel loss. Jesus felt loss at the death of his friend Lazarus. He wept, but he had hope. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. And he said, I I even let you, my, my friends, Martha and Mary, experienced this loss with me so that you could see the power of God. And then Christ, I'm so thankful, um, not just with Lazarus, but then through his own sacrifice, showed us that he has the power over even death. It's why we don't grieve as those who have no hope because our gods are not insufficient. Our God has created for us victory over sin and death. The grave and sin and death has lost its power and lost its sting. So while there is um, grief that never ends, it does change. Grief is a passage that we pass through. If you don't know about our ministry here called Grief Share, I would encourage you to check it out. It's a, it's a wonderful ministry for folks that, uh, children and adults who have lost somebody and who are grieving and to be reminded by the study of scripture and the comfort of one another how we can make our way through this passage that is grief. Grief is not a sign of weakness. It's not because of a lack of faith. Grief is the price of love. When you lose somebody that you love, what a gift that God gave you, the gift of that father, that brother, that sister, that friend. It's just the price of love. But you know what else was the price of love? The redemption of those that caused God grief. You and me and our sin. And love went to a cross to redeem our lives from the pit and to pay the the wages of our sin, which is death, and to give us the free gift of eternal life. So watch what Paul writes. He says this right here, brother, I don't want you to be naive and uninformed about those who are asleep. And asleep here, I'll get to in a second because it shows up three times. He says, so that you will not grieve as those who have no hope. We're supposed to grieve differently. Here's why. Because if we believe that Jesus Christ, in verse 14, died and rose again, we believe, because Christ told us that, that he will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in the faith. Christ is going to return with those that have died before his return. That's the general statement. Now he's going to give you the the specific order in verses 15, 16, and 17. He says this, For I say to you by the word of the Lord, this isn't just my idea. Paul's saying, this is my teaching you what Jesus, in effect, has said, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, we're not going to precede those who have fallen asleep. So your friends that have died, they're almost, well, they are in a better place than you. Remember what Paul said, for me to live is Christ, to die is to gain. What Paul's going to try and do is strengthen the hearts of the Thessalonians. I want to strengthen your hearts right here because you and I right now today are living in a world that we are going to, when we're with our Savior and we see him in all of his glory, I've told you this before and it's true, the number one thing I'm going to ask Jesus for when I'm in heaven, if he doesn't remove this from me, when I see that God is who he says he was, that he really went to a cross for me, that he really was resurrected, that he really lived, that he really was very God of very God in the person of Jesus, and that he saved me and he left me here to serve him, I'm going to want to go back and go, can I just serve you for one more week? Can I go tell the world this is true? 
Paul's trying to tell the Thessalonians, you have such a privilege to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, to not despise prophetic utterances, but to, to test everything and, and to abstain from evil and to be God's workmen and workmanship so that others can know the goodness of God. What a privilege we have right now to serve our king. But guess what? When we die, it's gonna get better. We're gonna be with our king. We're not gonna have the chance to serve him anymore. We're just gonna enjoy him. And when we see how much joy he brings us and the, the fullness of our salvation, don't you go, can I do anything for you? Well, this is our day, Thessalonians, Watermarkians, friends listening. This is the day that we get to serve him. And it hurts us when we lose brothers that we love. But we haven't lost them forever. They're with Jesus. And their resurrection bodies are coming first. You guys know I, I do something called Real Truth Real Quick to try and answer questions sometimes. Myself and my friend Randy Alcorn, who wrote the best book on eternity that I know of called Heaven, we answer the question, what happens to us in what's called the intermediate state, right? Between our physical death, where we know from the scripture that we go to be present with the Lord. Because remember the thief on the cross? When Jesus turned to him and said, hey, today you will be with me in paradise. And yet that thief's body was taken off the cross and was put in a grave, just like Jesus is. Now Jesus is because he's the firstborn of all creation and because he's the first fruits of God's redemptive work was raised from the grave in three days. And then he said, he's gonna go be seated at the right hand of the father and he's gonna return. And in that return, there's going to be a resurrection of all of our bodies. And Paul's going to explain for us in verse 17, the order of that. And what you need to know is that the dead in Christ will rise to meet him first. And then those of us who remain will join them in the air. <laughs> okay, Info on that in just a second, but here's what you need to know. We don't think right now, and go check out that real truth real quick, what happens between our death and the resurrection of our bodies. Um, we don't think that we're in some intermediate state where there's no, well, we think we're in an intermediate state, but we don't believe for sure that there is what's called soul sleep. Remember how I told you that Paul uses three times right here, those who are asleep? There's a reason that we as Christians use the word sleep, and it's been, it was common, um, as a metaphor for death, because when you sleep, you look like you're dead, right? I, I, um, I quickly will tell you a story. I was on an airplane one time, and there was, uh, you know, we're getting ready to land, and the, and the flight attendant said, hey, would you please, you know, raise your seat backs and put your tray tables away and prepare for landing? And they were kind of going down. There was a guy whose seat was behind me. It was still leaning back, and she went over, and she looked at the guy, and, and the reason that one of the reasons that sleep is uh, a, a metaphor for death is because sometimes when you're asleep, you look dead. You're just so still. Sometimes you go, are they breathing? Well, that was the case with this guy. He was out. And she just jostled sir, would you please wake up, sir? And you know, about the fourth time she said it, I spun around like, okay, man, we're getting ready to go here. There's going to be a little CPR that's about to happen. And, um, and with that, you know, she got a little bit louder, like, sir. And she grabbed him, sir. And so now I'm up on the, my knees looking back over and, and um, there's now three or four people around. And all of a sudden, a person on the other side of the plane comes over, pushes the flight attendant out of the way. And she takes her knuckle <laughs> and she, she puts it right here in the guy's chest and she just drills it like that. And the guy goes, <laughs> and he kind of wakes up. She goes, hey, 
wake up, you're freaking everybody out. <laughs> and I mean, and the guy kind of did this. Now, apparently he wasn't just asleep. He had helped himself to um, some of the smaller bottles they sometimes serve on airplanes. And um, I, I go, do you know that guy? And she goes, no. She goes, I'm an emergency room nurse. And if somebody's alive, you put your knuckle right there in their sternum with any kind of pressure, they're going to wake up. And so that's what she did. But sleep looks like death. Sleep is a time of rest. But here's the other thing that sleep is. It's temporary. It's temporary. And there's an awakening. And what Paul's saying is, hey, our blessed rest is when we're in the presence of God and we're free from the labors of sin of this world. Don't look like you're dead. You should be alive right now. But when you do die, okay, when you do die, it's just a temporary death. And there's going to be a resurrection of your body. What that intermediate state is that we're in, there's good evidence that there is some corporal existence, but we're sure there's no soul sleep. We know that those who are dead are with Christ and alert and with him, worshiping him and speaking, which would seem to indicate that there's a body. But go listen to the real truth real quick. What you need to know is Paul wants you to be comforted by this. Are you ready? Let's read it one more time. We've read it once. We'll just uh, end with this. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Their bodies in the grave will rise. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and will always be with the Lord. Now I'm gonna, next week, uh, when we're gonna talk about the second coming of Christ, I'm gonna talk about this thing called the rapture, which is referenced here. And the return of Christ, the second coming, which is separate from the rapture in pretty much um, a right understanding as we can make it out. I wouldn't start a new church over this. Um, but but the, the beginning of the reign of Christ for a thousand years is what marks his return. And there's an event before that where those who are alive are violently snatched like a thief in the night up to meet the Lord in the clouds. But it says before we're snatched, the bodies of those who are already dead will come to meet whatever intermediate state that they're in. They're already with the Lord. You're going to be with them. And we're all going to be with our King. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Death is not the end. It's lost its victory and it's lost its sting. So let me just close perfectly because Paul wrote the Thessalonians from a town called Corinth. And when he wrote the Corinthians, he talked more about the resurrection event. And I'm gonna close with that. And then we're gonna introduce a new Watermark song to you that we've uh, written called Sing Hallelujah. And if you understand this passage, even in the midst of grief and the grave, we will sing. Here we go. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot, I'll read it right from my Bible as opposed to a note. I'd rather do that. So here we go. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. There we go. I got it marked for you. Okay. It says, um, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, sound familiar? At the trumpet, 
at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and will be changed. For this perishable must be put on the, the imperishable and the mortal, the immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? We sang a song at Easter we wrote called King of Victory. It came right from there. The sting of death is sin, the scripture says, and the power of sin is in the law and we don't follow it. But thanks be to God, it says in verse 57, who gives us life and victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, and this is the application, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast right now today. Be immovable. Don't get pushed off faithfulness. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our toil is not in vain because Christ is coming quickly. His reward is with them. He will recompense men according to his deeds. And if you know him, you have passed out of judgment into life. And let that life be ever more like Christ for you today. So don't grieve as those who have no hope. Have great hope that the resurrection is coming. You know the resurrected king and you have the privilege of serving him now. Let me pray for you and then we'll sing hallelujah. Here we go. Father, thank you. Thank you for this teaching, for this seminal text that we should comfort one another with continually. That's the application. You don't want us to be ignorant. And we should be like well-driven nails that we get the words from our chief shepherd and we build a place of comfort that holds things together. We build your house. We build your truth into other people. And then they become secure. I pray that we would be secure, Father, in our faith and that we would grieve and we would let each other grieve in a way that is um, appropriate for uh, each of us. But our grief would not be alone. It would be accompanied by hope. And I pray that that hope would come only, Lord, not from wishful thinking, not in superstition, not in believing that our beloved ones are angels. They're better than angels. They are with you in all the glory that you intended a human being to walk in and be created in. And so, Lord, help us to care for those who don't know you. Share with them the gospel, that they would believe the one that you have sent, that they would not come into judgment, but would pass out of death and into life. We thank you for the privilege of serving you now. And we sing hallelujah, because we know that even our greatest enemy, death, has been overcome by you. So let us not, Lord, in these closing days of our lives or maybe history, who knows, Let us not fear those who threaten to kill our bodies or kill our careers or kill our reputations, but let us, as Jesus said, fear the one who is able to destroy both body and cast soul into hell forever. Thank you that your grace has covered the hell of our sin and made us one with you. Let us walk with you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, sing hallelujah, people, all week long. Have a great week of worship. We'll see you next week.